thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Later this month, the 2012 Olympics kicks off in London, with hundreds of thousands of people expected to arrive from overseas and crowds at events containing tens of thousands of people. Is this the perfect trigger for a pandemic? And what can we do to keep big crowds safe? This week, we're looking at the public health implications of events like London 2012. Hello, it's Sunday, July the 1st. I'm Chris Smith, and also with us is Louise Anthony. Hello, Louise. Hello, Chris. And also on the way, news of a new way to communicate with paralysed patients who can't move by reading their brain activity. Plus, on the subject of the Olympics, a new wireless monitoring device to help swimmers to refine their technique. A gyroscope is important because the swimmer turns at the end of each length and so you're able to characterize the position through the tumble turn and you can then analyze the technique and that's all on the way the naked scientist podcast is powered by uk fast the uk's best hosting provider on the web at ukfast.co.uk One of the things we have to think about when we gather a large number of people into a small space is the risk of spreading diseases. We've seen in the past how outbreaks of diarrheal illnesses, like norovirus, can spread rapidly through hospitals, care homes and even cruise ships. The UK's Health Protection Agency, HPA, is charged with making sure that we're prepared for such an eventuality. And to tell us more is consultant in communicable disease control and also the Olympics lead for the HPA in the east of England. And that's Dr Chris Williams. Chris, hello. Good evening. First of all, are we on the verge of a pandemic with the Olympics or or is this not going to happen? There are a lot of people coming and there's a, I've looked at some statistics on this. 204 countries are involved, around a million overnight visitors and possibly another five and a half million um, what they call day trippers coming to London, increased numbers of people in hotel rooms. But we also must remember that this isn't the first ever international sporting event and uh, at each event that's happened in the past, infectious disease specialists and similar organisations through the Health Protection Agency have uh, done surveillance, watched out for threats and, and, and managed them. And so really, we're not expecting the next pandemic to happen here. And in fact, the Health Protection Agency looked at this in, in 2011 and found no significant risk of, of that happening from this kind of event. Oh, we can go home now. Thanks for that reassurance. <laughs> but the thing I'm getting at is that if we look back in history, we know that mass movements of people do bring with them various things and people coming back from World War One is said to have at least played a part in the distribution of Spanish flu. So if we do have lots of people moving, and that's a lot of people movements, the numbers you've cited, then there must be a risk. It's fair to cite um, instances like the First World War. There were obviously mass movements of people all around the world, but then you have to look at their living circumstances and the durations of time that they were moving is is a lot different to the Olympics. With something like the Olympics, you're looking at essentially a lot of young, relatively prosperous given travel costs, etc., people coming to an international city that is used to having vast amounts of visitors every year and looking in the media, there's, it's not clear how many extra visitors there will actually be because um, London's used to, I say, getting lots of people. Even commuting every morning is a large movement in and out of people. So Millions, I think, isn't yes, it? Three, London Transport, say, three million a day at least, isn't it? It's of, comparable in terms of the, the numbers moving. Obviously, the, the tubes and, and transport system will be more full because of the Olympics, but we don't kind of worry about a pandemic happening in Hertfordshire every morning because of the commuting. Um, so... We do have to prepare. We do have to. We want to look out to make sure that nothing, nothing is happening. And, and the health protection agency are doing a lot of what we usually do, which is looking out for, preparing for, responding to cases and, and, and outbreaks of disease, but also some additional surveillance um, 
counting not just cases of known infection, but doing some things called syndromic surveillance, where if you phone up NHS Direct and say, I've got vomiting or my child has got a cough or whatever, this gets counted. And, and we'll be monitoring those figures, which normally come out weekly, actually coming out daily from these sites around the country. And also we've, they've included um, GP out-of-hours services and some accident emergency departments. So we're doing what we do every day, but we've just extended it a bit further. That sort of thing means that you should be able to spot if there is an emerging outbreak of something early, so you will go in and nip it in the bud. What will you do if someone says, right, we we seem to be picking up an outbreak of something, let's say measles or something, in this area? What will you do? How will you manage that? You'd start off by trying to work out if there really was a problem. Sometimes the, there's an artefact in the in the figures or there might be a, a lot of laboratory reports coming at one time. So you make sure that you've got a problem and then you try and see how big the problem is. So are there any other cases associated? You might need to communicate with the people to find out further cases, often by going to the venue, asking other people. And then you start to bring together information about all the cases and describe it, you know, these old people, young people, what have they been doing, are there any characteristics that bring them together? It's called the descriptive epidemiology. Out of that, you can try and generate a hypothesis as to what's happened and how we can console and prevent it. Obviously, you might get a good idea on the first day if it's diarrhea and vomiting. Well, we tell everyone to wash their hands and not prepare food, etc. So we have control measures that go all the way through. But you can then do further statistical investigations to work out sources of outbreaks and incidents. I was looking on, on the way up of uh, quite an interesting one from 2006 in Germany where there was a triathlon competition and uh, out of the athletes they had one case of quite a rare disease called leptospirosis, which you may have heard of. as the, Vials yeah, disease, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, vials disease, yes, which you know, occasionally people talk about the cam, etc. Uh, obviously in the triathlon people are in uh, non-swimming pool water and so having found one case they wrote to all of the 200 or so athletes to see if there were any other cases. Actually there were around 600 and they managed to get about 140 blood specimens. Out of that they only found five cases in total so again quite a rare illness but they found there was a a statistical association with having cuts or abrasions on the skin and that's how the the bug gets in through the dirty water so that was a good example of a rare disease picked up through surveillance and investigated. What about something much more nefarious because there's also a concern that al-Qaeda could for example seed an event with an infectious agent or send the infectious equivalent of a suicide bomber to an event to spread something. Have you got plans for that? Obviously the everyday surveillance that we do is continually looking out not just for the usual things but for for rare items. Some of the laboratories that are involved are doing more rapid testing of infectious agents to turn around things more quickly and we're also doing surveillance for undiagnosed severe infections. So if someone did come up with something particularly unusual and they were people in intensive care units trying to work out what was wrong with them. There's a surveillance system for picking up those sorts of rare events and then then investigating them. Some people are saying, though, that if you get an outbreak, by the time you discover it's an outbreak, it's too late because the thing is already spreading. Obviously, it depends what sort of infection you're talking about and the circumstances we do, in fact, usually learn about outbreaks after there have been a few cases. The classic one we have is, is of a wedding uh, where a meal is being served to 100 people and, and one of the items, sometimes the chicken liver parfait, is, is one of the current bugbears, has become contaminated with something or has been improperly prepared. And so what you get is a number of people have been ill, but the wedding has happened. There's not much you can do to take that away from them. But you can try and prevent the caterer using the same sort of techniques in other weddings and you can also prevent people passing it on to each other having become ill. That's a fairly everyday sort of, well, not quite everyday, but you know, every month perhaps. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt or T-shirt without the R, actually. It wasn't liver passe, it was volivant in my case, I think. What do you think, just to finish off, about the, the claim earlier this year? It was uh, one of the medical advisors to the Olympic team and he was saying, don't shake hands with these receiving lines of other athletes because this will transmit diseases. Sounds like a load of tosh. The Health Protection Agency would, would emphasise good hygiene as, and all the sensible sort of things that you should do. And if you, particularly if you've got some kind of diarrheal illness, then, then washing your hands before shaking hands with anyone, or if you've got a cold or a cough, is always a good idea. But I don't think that shaking hands in, in general should be prohibited and would seem to be against the, the Olympic spirit. It would, and also the fact that, yes, you can avoid shaking hands, but you can't avoid touching a door handle and all these other things that we have to do to go about our daily lives. And if other people are unsalubrious, have something and have touched all their same surfaces, you're 
you're going to pick it up. That does happen. I mean, you mentioned earlier norovirus in care homes and cruise ships. I mean, that, that happens all over the place, unfortunately, because these things are often very difficult to clean off. But you have to remember that most of our experience is that most people go through their daily lives without coming down with these infections. And at most mass events, really nothing largely of note has happened. There's not... I mean, touching wood, but there's been no major um, incidents at international sporting events. And we just hope that, uh, that it's the health and sporting aspects that predominate rather than uh, any infections. Reassuring words. Thank you very much. Chris Williams from the Health Protection Agency. Every large building or venue has an evacuation procedure to ensure that everyone stays safe. Most offices and schools provide lots of information and will have regular fire drills to make sure everyone knows what to do in the event of an emergency. But this isn't the case in many public places and obviously simply isn't an option in preparation for the Olympics. Now, with that in mind, we need other means of understanding crowd behaviour and guiding people to safety. And to find out more, we're joined by psychologist Dr Clifford Stott, who currently works for Crowd and Conflict Management. Dr Stott, how did you end up doing that? Uh, studying crowds, um, well, I came to it from a, a personal interest, really. I spent a lot of times on demonstrations when I was younger and was fascinated by crowd dynamics, and it was coming across the work of a guy called Steve Reicher that when I started to read that when I was studying a psychology degree, I found the stuff fascinating and kind of got sucked into the world of crowd psychology, quite an obscure world, uh, unusual, uh, but very, very interesting, very, very stimulating uh, ideas and, and, and a great, great uh, field to work in. When we're talking about studying crowd psychology and sort of learning about how crowds interact and how they work, what what can we actually do to learn about that? First and foremost, you have to make sure that you look at them in the right way theoretically. The trouble with our understanding of crowd psychology is that we're polluted, if you like, by our outdated ideas. And the thing about crowd psychology is that crowd psychology is, is a bit political. It has a political implication in the way that we understand the riots in the summer, for example, has profound political implications in terms of governmental responsibility for, for, for things that uh, spark the riots, policing, all those kinds of things. So we have this way of looking at the crowd that treats the crowd as if it's a bit irrational, as if it's uh, a thing of primitive psychology. And where we study crowds, what we do is to treat them meaningfully. And in order to study them, we uh, go to crowd events, we take part in crowd events, we interview people who are in crowd events, and use that kind of data to build our understanding of, of how crowds work. So we look at how they behave, and then we relate what we understand about their psychology, which we're going through analysing what people say, to make a model of how psychological processes can help us to account for what crowds do, why they do what they do, and more importantly, when they're going to do things because it's that predictive dimension that's the most important thing when we come to trying to understand crowds. And obviously there are, there are different sorts of crowds. You mentioned the riots, but the, the crowds at the Olympics, I'm assuming those are going to be somewhat different. Is there anything special about them? Well, I think the first thing to do is to recognise that we need to draw a distinction between what we call physical aggregates of people and psychological crowds. Just because people together in the same physical location like they will be in the Olympic Village doesn't mean to say that they're a psychological crowd. They're just a physical aggregate. And it's really what we do is to try and understand that psychological component to crowd behaviour. And when we look at it, we're looking at collective action, not lots of individuals behaving individually in terms of their own individuality in the same place at the same time, but that moment within a physical crowd where everybody starts to do the same thing, when a goal goes in and there's a cheer or a gold medal is scored and there's a cheer, that kind of collective action is what we're trying to actually explain in crowds, not just simply uh, the idea that when people get together in crowds they become a single psychological crowd because that's quite simply not the case. Sure. So obviously with the Olympics, we're going to be looking more at sort of like small groups of people who will be going along with, say, a group of their friends or their family. And it's when something big happens that they all join together and think of themselves as part of the much larger group. Yes, absolutely. And I think the, the, the best example is to think of it in terms of national identity. You know, people will go into the Olympic Village and a large number of them are, of course, going to be British in terms of their identity. When they come to the village, they're not going to see themselves so much in terms of that Britishness. But certainly when, uh, you know, we, we, we score some of those uh, gold medal victories and people uh, start to cheer and to see themselves and to celebrate their British identity, they become part of a psychological crowd that's defined in terms of that single social identity. And it's that transition from the individual to the social identity that underpins the basis for why people can behave collectively when they do. How can that help us if there were, say, an emergency? I mean, we know from the July 7-7 bombings a few years ago that people will group together and help each other out in an emergency situation. Is there a way we can sort of help that to happen? 
when we are thinking about mass emergencies, I think that when we look at the Olympic crowds, we don't really have a thought in our minds about a disorderly crowd, a kind of conflictual crowd. We think much more in terms of safety and security of large numbers of people in the Olympics venue. And we've already had a discussion today on this programme about some of the potential threats there. There's the notion of some kind of biological or chemical contaminant, uh, some kind of terrorist incident. Clearly a very unpleasant set of ideas to be discussing, but if something like that were to happen, there are some very profound things that we need to understand about what happens to people psychologically in those kinds of physical aggregates. And usually what we do is to look at that psychology in terms of our common sense assumptions. And of course, when one thinks about common sense assumptions of crowds in mass emergency, the first thing that comes to mind is the notion of panic. We think crowds panic. And when we think about why people get injured or indeed unfortunately die in these kinds of mass emergencies, say for example, a nightclub fire or uh, some kind of other stadium disaster, we, we tend to think that they die because um, they all rush for the exit at the same time, that somehow uh, the crowd psychology takes us over and we all become selfish and emotional and irrational and while we might be able to normally orderly get through this door, because we all rush to it at the same time in this mad mass panic, we all can't get through it and therefore that's what kills us, as if the crowd psychology is what kills us. But actually the evidence doesn't bear that up. What we see is a very, very different phenomenon. That, that people actually, in the context of mass emergencies, are very orderly, they're very rational, they're very helpful. Um, and what we see there is a situation of, of uh, trying to promote collective psychology rather than undermine it. We shouldn't see that the crowd is a problem in mass emergencies, we see actually the crowd as a solution. So really, we just need to sort of let the crowd do what it's going to do and not panic and just let people know if there's an emergency and we need to get them out. Well, I think that this is part of what we need to understand about how to handle mass evacuations. It's because we need to give people practical information. We need to try and promote a collective psychology in a physical aggregate. They might not actually have a crowd psychology, and it's that absence of crowd psychology that's part of the problem. Because where we have a sense of collective identity, we tend to see ourselves as similar to those people around us, and we tend to help more. We tend to cooperate. We tend to be more orderly and more ordered about how we go about an evacuation and if people trip over we're more likely to help them up and help the flow of the traffic through a particular location so it's all these kinds of things that flow from uh, a collective identity but perhaps one of the most important is what we might call validation if you think about yourself in a situation where you're at work and you hear a fire alarm go off what do you do you tend to think oh god not again another fire drill and it's really actually how do you know that that's a fire drill and not an actual emergency and what we know is that one of the biggest predictors of whether people survive mass emergencies or not is recognising the problem in the first place. And really, when we're looking in a situation when an alarm goes off, what we tend to do is to look to other people and look to their responses. And once we get to a point where everybody's beginning to recognise, well, hang on a minute, maybe this is a problem, perhaps we better get out of here, that's when we go. So promoting that sense of collective cooperation, that sense of identity, creates an environment where we're much more capable of talking to each other, validating the situation and actually getting to grips with what the nature of the problem is in order that we can start to respond to it. So it's that, that process of collective psychology is incredibly helpful and indeed is the route to what we call in this environment resilience. Fabulous. And that's exactly what we need. Thank you very much, Clifford. That's Crowd and Conflict Management's Dr Clifford Stark. And this is Chris Smith and Louise Anthony. We're the Naked Scientists. We're talking about the Olympics and some of the threats and some of the solutions to those threats this evening. If you would like to get in touch, email chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or we have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Reacting to the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. We'll return in a moment to our theme this week about keeping the Olympics safe, including having a look at how computers can be used to model crowd movements so we can design safe venues. We'll also be asking whether an ice pack really does soothe an injury. But first, let's take a look at what's been making scientific headlines this week. And Louise, what have you got for us? Well, I've got some exciting news for brain reading. Following serious accidents or huge strokes, some people develop a condition that's known as locked-in syndrome, where they're fully conscious and aware of their surroundings and they can hear what's going on around them, but they're unable to speak or even move. Now, a few of these people will still be able to move a muscle or two in their face, which is how the author of The Diving Bell and the Butterfly wrote his memoir with blinking. But there are a lot 
lot who have absolutely no voluntary movement at all and so no way of communicating with the people around them. Now, for some years, scientists have been working on brain-computer interfaces to overcome this problem, and the aim has mostly been to try and decode brain activity to allow their thoughts to become speech. In the past, we've used electroencephalography, or EEG, where we stick electrodes to the scalp of the patients and record the electrical activity in the brain underneath. But the problem is that those don't work so well in all patients with locked-in syndrome, and usually there's a really long training period before they work properly, so you have to sort of get the device to work for the individual. But now, some scientists in the Netherlands have run a proof-of-concept study using functional magnetic resonance imaging, which allowed volunteers to have a two-way conversation with the experimenters, here's the important bit, within a single session in real time. The only training that was needed was a 12-and-a-half-minute initial scan just to identify which brain areas are active during specific mental tasks. The way this worked is that volunteers were shown a screen in the scanner with a table on it which gave each letter of the alphabet one of three mental tasks, motor imagery, mental calculation or inner speech, and these light up different areas of the brain. By including a delay before that mental task and varying the length of the time for which the volunteer did that thing, every letter in the alphabet could be coded. So, for example, for the letter E, you would wait 10 seconds, then imagine playing tennis for 30 seconds and then stop. And the computer looks at the readout, looks at which areas are active and tries to work out which letter the volunteer is trying to encode. And 82% of the time, the first choice that the computer made was the correct letter, but it gives you a choice of three. And the letter that the volunteer had chosen was always in that top three most likely. And that's what meant that the experimenters could have a proper conversation with the volunteer in the scanner without that volunteer having to move a single muscle. Now, this hasn't been tried in patients yet. It's just a proof of concept study. And the training could take rather the longer in patients who can't control where they're looking so they necessarily can't see the whole of the screen at once but it is a non-invasive technique it could work in people in complete paralysis and a single session could prove that a patient was still fully conscious even though they were paralyzed because it would be impossible to tell otherwise in some of these people and we had adrian newland from cambridge on this program about a year ago showing that and he published this in the New England Journal of Medicine, he took patients who were dubbed brain-dead, persistent vegetative state, put them in the brain scanner and said, think about taking a wander around your house or think about playing tennis. And these people were responding meaningfully, and he was actually able to have a conversation using a sort of gross task like that with these individuals, showing that your technique that you're highlighting could be used to unlock... Uh, a sort of a means of communication with these people. It was some horrifying figure like 11 out of 15 of these brain-dead people actually weren't brain-dead at all and were just stuck and couldn't communicate in any way. So this is really important. Sure. Where was that published? Uh, that was in Current Biology this week. Thank you, Louise. Well, also this week, another very important topic is the subject of heart disease. And a staggering statistic is that of the people who suffer a heart attack, the risk of having another heart attack after you've had a first one is significantly higher. In fact, some studies predict that maybe one person in five, having had a first attack, will have a second heart attack within a year. Now, Prevailing Wisdom said that was just a reflection on the fact that you've already got an underlying disease and it's just progressing. But actually, the risk of the second heart attack appears to be disproportionately big compared with the risk of the first one, suggesting that maybe the first heart attack is doing something to make the subsequent one much more likely. And there's a paper in Nature this week that gives us a tantalising glimpse into how this could be happening. It's by a team at Harvard led by Ralph Freislader. And what they have done is to use mice, which are genetically programmed to get arterial disease, and they give these mice a heart attack and they then show that after they've had a heart attack the levels of cells called monocytes and macrophages shoot up over the subsequent three weeks in their blood vessel walls and these cells produce enzymes that break down connective tissue and it appears that what's happening is that stress from the heart attack triggers the brain and the nervous system to make the bone marrow release stem cells. These stem cells go to the spleen, which is an immune organ in the abdomen. This turns these stem cells into monocytes. They go around in the blood, and wherever there are damaged patches of blood vessel walls, but which are otherwise stable, they move into the wall of the blood vessel. They then start secreting this cocktail of chemicals that break down the wall of the blood vessel, making it much more likely that that area will erode and ulcerate and then have another 
event subsequently. Now, the good news in this is that they actually think they know what the signal is that the nervous system uses to make the bone marrow and make those stem cells in the first place. It's a signal which uses adrenaline or noradrenaline, and it works on a kind of a receptor called a beta-3 receptor. And beta-blocking drugs can stop this happening. And so they suggest this could be a very important way to intervene in the process of heart disease, which, given that one person in three is destined to suffer a heart attack in their lifetime, could be really important news. Fabulous. It's not only the athletes taking part in London 2012 who will be feeling under pressure at the moment. What about their coaches? For a sport like swimming, the process of coaching is very tricky because you have to assess an athlete's technique with the added complication of rather a lot of water getting in the way. But Team GB swimmers have been getting a bit of extra help from some cutting-edge technology, as Jane Reck explains. Tumble turns, dives, glides and stroke technique. Every aspect of movement is crucial for elite swimmers. For their coaches, training athletes for a sport where most of the activity takes place in water is obviously a challenge. However, a pioneering wireless tracking system developed by UK researchers has been helping some of Team GB's swimmers prepare for London 2012. It brings existing sensing and motion tracking technologies together into one system. Crucially, the researchers have also developed revolutionary technology that enables data to be transmitted wirelessly through water. The research has been taking place at Loughborough University, led by Paul Conway, Professor of Manufacturing Processes. This came about really from a challenge from British Swimming, who had tried a number of times in the past to understand a bit more about how their swimmers performed and how they might measure how they perform. Because the swimming pool is quite a challenging environment because there's lots of water... The human body is mostly water, so it makes tracking things wirelessly very, very difficult. And, and doing things like measuring in real time, things like speed, number of strokes they're taking, how they move in the water and how they turn or how they start, is very difficult because there's a lot of water and it's a noisy environment in terms of the signal noise and the amount of interference you have. Professor Mike Kane is director of Loughborough's world-leading Sports Technology Institute. Along with Paul Conway, he explained more about the new system. It's a small box of electronics that's worn on the small of the back that sends wireless signals that are picked up by a a laptop receiver on the poolside. And that laptop then displays the various um, measures that that are of interest to the athlete and and the coach. And then at each end of the pool we have a pressure mat essentially stuck to the wall. It's a very thin pressure mat, which is like a, a large area. Then you touch it, you can measure pressure, essentially force. Also, we've got some underwater high-speed video cameras, and also on the swimmer we have some LED markers, which are quite unique, which are waterproof markers, they wear on their hip. The idea was that we would utilise technology, things like accelerometers, gyroscopes, motion tracking techniques, that we'd either directly developed ourselves within the research group or we were taking those technologies as they were emerging elsewhere and integrating them into a package that would support the, the swimmers and their coaches. Effectively, an accelerometer allows you to derive speed, velocity. Of course, you can also derive acceleration, so the rate of change in velocity, and that can be just as interesting. A gyroscope is important because the swimmer turns at the end of each length, and so you're able to characterise the position through the tumble turn, and you can then analyse the technique. We start to look at the biomechanics or you know, the kinematics, the human motion, relative to their position in 3D space and it's important to understand the orientation of the athlete so that you can make some meaningful analysis from those data. Innovative projects underway at the Institute's research labs range from the development of new materials for sports footwear to tailor-made handle grips for rackets. Paul and Mike say a significant aspect of this research has been developing a way of transmitting wireless signals underwater. Wireless technologies are part of our everyday life now, but you'll appreciate that the vast majority of transmissions are through air. There are very, very few everyday applications that require transmission through water. And so it's not surprising that the transmission of wireless information through water has received less attention. And that really meant that all of the everyday commercially available protocols just didn't work in in that environment. I can disclose that we've optimised the frequencies of our transmission, the antenna design on on the swimmer and also on the base station on the side of the pool, the arrangement of the equipment on the swimmer and beside the pool, 
also the software, putting intelligence in it so it knows what's happening and can interpret if a signal drops out, what to do and how you can account for that. Building redundancy as well, so we can still get the data if we lose it for a few seconds. And putting that together with other things around the pool, such as video and force sensors and starting blocks and pressure pads at each end of the pool for measuring the turn, and, and putting that all together into one system, integrated system, is, is a unique thing, which you can actually watch it on video, high-speed video, and also see what's happening with an inertial sensor that's showing in real time. So each frame of the video is, is synchronised with what's happening in all the other sensors. And that's probably the, the key step, is bringing it all together, integrating the, the various sensor modes. So we were having to genuinely invent new ways to transmit data that would be successful whilst in the pool environment. I can't describe exactly how we have done that because it's subject to a patent. It is an inventive step and it it is one that has commercial value. But hopefully you get a sense of perhaps if you think about water as a medium and air as a medium, they're so different that you need a radically different approach to the same problem. The new system enables coaches to give much quicker feedback to the swimmers. They will see simultaneously on on the computer screen, they see the video as well as the data that's coming off the node, synchronised. They'll see also, if there's a turn, they'll see the the, the data we're getting from the pressure map presented in a way that's understandable, a nice colour map of you can see when the feet touch the wall, how hard they touch the wall, how long they're on the wall in terms of the the time some of them bend their legs a bit longer, so they're pushing a bit longer on the wall. They'll see also some of the measurements we get from the node that we're on the back. We can pick up stroke rate, the velocity, how quickly they turn, how quickly they tumble. And they get that almost real-time. They watch it real-time, and then it throws up the data. Beyond swimming and London 2012, the system is already being looked at by industry to track components in factories, for instance, where there are wet and noisy environments. The project is supported by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. Other partners are British Swimming, UK Sport, Imperial College London and Queen Mary, University of London. Well, we'll find out in a month or so whether it's had any effect but what a wonderful breakthrough. Jane Reck there reporting on a new wireless underwater tracking system that's being used in the training session for Team GB's swimmers. Now, also this week, make no bones about it, as they say, because dinosaurs, according to this piece of research, were warm-blooded. Now, for many years, paleontologists have said that dinosaurs are cold-blooded because their close-living relatives, the reptiles, are cold-blooded. And one strand of evidence that everyone uses is that in these reptiles, you find structures called lines of arrested growth, or lags for short, in their bones. Effectively, these lags correspond, a bit like tree rings, to the amount of growth that goes on in a season, and you get a lag when the winter comes because it's cold and the animal's under stress and its metabolism has plummeted. The problem is, though, or the fly in this ointment, is that recently scientists have had a closer look at these lags in dinosaurs, and they're subtly different to the lags that you find in reptiles. And also, reports have been surfacing that mammals, including some ruminants, also have these structures. Now, they're warm-blooded, which means that it kind of flies in the face of this perceived wisdom. So, a group of researchers at the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona, this is Mika Kola and her colleagues, have got a paper in Nature this week where they've said what was missing was a comprehensive and thorough analysis. So they've gone and obtained samples of 100 different ruminants that live in 36 different countries spanning Africa and Europe. In other words, they're looking at a very comprehensive range of different latitudes, animals that live high and cold, right down into low and hot. And what they find is that, and and I'll quote from their paper, lags are universally present in all climatic regimes. In other words, all these animals they studied have these things. Their argument, though, is that if you then marry this data to in-depth information they have on the animal's metabolic rates and time of year, you see that when the animals are under stress, when it's dry or very cold, then they produce these things. So they think that this is an ancestral effect which the animal uses to slow down its metabolism and conserve energy when it coincides with times of stress, and it probably inherits this tendency from an ancient ancestor knocking around when the dinosaurs were there. So that's one thing. A, it's an an ancient trait. The other is that the dinosaur features are very similar to these mammalian features, which strongly suggest that the dinosaurs could themselves well have been warm-blooded, not cold-blooded, and that resonates with previous studies that have suggested that were dinosaurs cold-blooded, they would have been so sluggish and slow 
they wouldn't have been able to get about. Something else would have eaten them first because they wouldn't have been able to run away. And we also have fossilised footprints of dinosaurs showing big animals running, suggesting they could make quite fast movements for periods of time. And to do that, they would have needed quite a fast metabolism, which cold-bloodedness probably wouldn't have sustained. So it's all beginning to piece together. Looks like dinosaurs may have been warm-blooded after all. Mm, that is interesting. And actually, you mentioned those legs being present in ruminants. And they also happen in humans. If you get a small child and make them very, very sick, then they end up with these very dense lines in their bones where they've stopped growing because they're so ill. So not just cold-blooded animals, humans too. Louise, thank you very much. And now with a roundup of some of the other science stories that are hitting the headlines this week, here is Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. Fathers who smoke at the time of their child's conception risk passing on damaged DNA to their newborn babies. Using biomarkers to measure breaks in DNA in both paternal blood and semen at the time of conception and then maternal and umbilical cord blood at birth, as well as accounting for environmental factors that could damage DNA, such as smoking, Diane Anderson from the University of Bradford found a strong correlation between the DNA damaged in the sperm of smokers and their newborn children. Anti-smoking campaigns are aimed at pregnant women. But couples planning their families and public health policymakers need to know that the father must stop smoking before conception to avoid risking the health of the baby. Dads at the time of conception, if they stopped smoking and you waited three months, because that's the time it takes the sperm to develop, the chances of passing on damage would be much lessened. Magnetic tornadoes on the surface of the sun transport heat into its atmosphere, helping create the significantly hotter temperatures found in this outer atmosphere, known as the corona. Sven Wiedemeyer-Bohm from the University of Oslo detected swirling magnetic structures, similar to supertornadoes stretching from the sun's surface up to 2,000 kilometres into the corona. Using 3D numerical models, his team showed in the journal Nature that these swirls are convecting heat away from the sun's surface and transferring the energy needed to reach the high temperatures found there, the causes of which were unknown until now. We currently estimate that there are at least 11,000 of them across the sun at all times, transporting energy from the surface into the upper layers. That is very important when we want to solve the so-called coronal heating problem. The outer layers of the sun have temperatures in excess of a million degrees or more. So that means we need to transport some energy from the surface of the sun into these outer layers. But it's not very clear how this happens. And these magnetic tornadoes now provide a very promising way to do that. And finally, the early hominin species Australopithecus sediba, which lived two million years ago, lived on a diet of leaves, fruit and bark. By analysing carbon isotopes in tooth enamel, patterns of dental wear and scratches and plant remains in the plaque of teeth from two skeletons of these early humans, Amanda Henry from the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany identified their diet to consist predominantly of bark and woody tissues, varying greatly from other African hominins of that time. This species was living in environments that were pretty open, grassland like a savanna, but they ate foods that came from the very small forested patches within that bigger environment. The other hominins usually focused on grassland resources. They were really strongly focusing on those open savanna-like environments. And so now we have sort of the first evidence that there was really more variation. These species were moving into new areas and trying new things. And that work was published in the journal Nature. Mira Santalingham with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. And you can find the transcripts and the references for all of those stories covered this week on our website at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. On a farm in Berkshire, not far from Reading, you'll find a rather unusual looking campsite. There are around 40 structures, about 40 metres square, but with white gauze rather than canvas. And inside these pollinator flight cages are crop plants and buzzing bees. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson went to the experimental farm to meet Simon Potts, the Professor of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services at the University of Reading and also Deputy Director of the Centre for Food Security. Well, what we've got here is a set of experimental cages where we can actually manipulate the types of pollinators we have inside them and then we can actually expose different plants. They can be wildflowers or they can be crops. And we can actually test what the impact of the different pollinators are on the pollination success. What types of pollinators? Is it strictly bees? 
Well, there's lots of different insects that pollinate, but probably bees are the most important, certainly in Europe. What we have here, we have honeybees, which uh, most people will know about, but we also have managed bumblebees. But we also have some solitary bees, and one particular sort is called mason bees, because they nest in small tubes. And we also have some hoverflies as well. Duncan Coston is with us. He's a research technician at the university. Could you explain the sort of crops that we've got? I think I can vaguely recognise the flower of one of those, possibly broad bean. Well, here it's a field bean. Ah, that's why it's so much taller than a broad bean. It is, yeah. And they're grown quite often for things like cattle feed. But here we're using them because we can use them as quite a nice indicator with our various different pollinator species. So we've got them in here in individual plant pots. So we can then move individual plants to expose them to our various pollinator species. And then we can keep them in another cage, keep them excluded from all pollinators. So we know the only thing that's pollinated that is the species we've exposed it to. So let's just wander across here because you've got the field beans there, which is, uh, I say, new for me. And then in the one next to it there, that's very recognisable, the yellow flower. Yep, this cage and in a lot of our other cages were full of oilseed rape, which is another one of the main crops we're using for the crops project. Simon, last year you discovered that wild bumblebees play a much more important role in crop pollination than, than was previously thought. I would say a very widely held belief that honeybees basically did most of the pollination of crops in the UK, and actually that was true back in the 70s and 80s. But since then we've had like really catastrophic declines in the number of hives, and it turns out that currently it's about only 10 or 15% of the work's actually done by honeybees. So the real heroes of our kind of crop pollination turn out to be these wild bees, and we have 267 species in the UK, including a number of bumblebees, solitary bees and other small bees as well. So it's really important if we want to kind of sustainably grow food and make sure we've got good pollination, we need to know who does the work. And if it's the wild bees doing the work, then we really need to think about how to manage the landscape to help them. So do we know who does most of the work when it comes to crop pollination? You, we're getting there, so we definitely So know. we still don't know. Well, it, it's amazing. I mean, people have known about pollination for decades, but actually that really fundamental question, who actually does the work, we don't know for all crops, and we're just starting to pick it apart. So quite often it's a combination. It's really good to have a diversity of pollinators because that provides sort of insurance. So, for instance, bumblebees are really good in cold weather and they can fly in those sort of temperatures. But when it's really hot, they don't like it so much, and maybe the more the kind of solitary bees come in and do the pollination. So as you've got kind of climate change and environmental change one of the big questions is how can we manage the landscape to make sure we have the right set of pollinators not just a single one but a whole set of them so we can always have good pollination so this is partly why you've got these controlled conditions in our little bee flight cage campsite here so you know what crops you've got as duncan was saying you know what pollinators you've got Mm -hmm. and then you're looking at the mix to see which one works best best yeah so the first question is on their own how well do they do and then the second question is if we add them together do we actually get a kind of greater benefit of having a different combination of pollinators and actually what we do finally is then we cross check this by actually going out into the fields into real farms and actually looking at what's actually visiting flowers now not every flower visitor is a pollinator so there's some very crafty bumblebees out there and they actually they go to the flowers but if you watch very carefully they go to the base and they pinch a hole and in fact they're nectar robbers and they do nothing for the field beans at all they just take the nectar away. So we've got to know a lot about their individual behaviour as well as kind of which species are out there. What about the research that's come out recently? There were two papers that cited neonicotinoid insecticides and the, the extremely negative impact that they've had on wild bees. Well, I think these studies are really important because we're just starting to see now not just the direct lethal effects of pesticides, but there's also these sublethal effects where it maybe changes how reproductive they can be or it maybe changes in honeybees the way they kind of forage and their homing behaviour. And I think it's just a, a really clear warning that we don't know enough and actually as we look more and more, we are finding these negative impacts and we should think more carefully about the types of pesticides we use and how we use them. Simon Potts and Duncan Coston from the University of Reading. You can hear more about their project in the Planet Earth podcast, which you can find links to from thenakedscientists.com slash planet earth. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Louise Anthony. This week we're looking at the science behind keeping the Olympics safe. Louise. With tens of thousands of people visiting the Olympic Park during the Games and with them all attending at the same time, venues inside the grounds need to be able to handle large crowds safely and efficiently. The risk of congestion is quite high and this can cause both distress and discomfort for the individuals who have to queue. 
But now, scientists are using mathematical models to visualise how large crowds move in certain spaces in order to predict where problems might arise. And this means architects can overcome these issues before the designs have even left the drawing board. This new technology is now being used in a wide range of public spaces, including the recently refurbished King's Cross station in London. Mira Senthilingham went along to the station to meet Stephen Bishop, the Professor of Dynamics at University College London, to find out how these models can keep crowds on the move. We're here at King's Cross Station in London, where a new concourse opened back in March earlier this year. This station sees over 40 million people passing through every year, which is about nearly 110,000 people every day. So when designing such a station, the, the movements and mentalities of crowds and how they move through need to be accounted for. So Steve, this is what you really look into, the mathematical modelling of, of people as they move through a space such as this. Yes, Mira, modelling crowd movement in major structures is an important uh, aspect of all design nowadays for, for large structures. This one's pretty magnificent, actually. It looks very stadia-like on the inside, and, and certainly a lot of modelling would have had to be done in the design process. So how do you actually model people and the movement of people mathematically? What's taken into account? Well, there's three factors, really. There's the individual person themselves... The second is the crowd movement as an object, really, but there's also the environment with which they're within. So those three aspects all need to come into play. And so what do you actually do to see perhaps how those factors would come together and get, say, hundreds of thousands of people moving through a station like this every day? Well, firstly, an understanding of flows like fluid flows are very useful to give an overview of what's happening, to understand how those flows move through an object, uh, through a space. But it's also important then to think about how individuals behave because we're not robots. We don't always act as flows. We often go against the flow, so we have to understand how individuals behave, which is sometimes irrational. What would you say are the main ways that, say, models can be combined with design in order to make a space crowd-friendly? So the important thing is, with mathematics, you can actually do modelling on the computer. So you can do experiments on a computer in silico, saving you the, the hassle of having to build a structure and find out there's a problem later on. The, the idea is you can run through different scenarios very quickly on a computer so that we can really understand how the form and the function interrelate. So let's take this King's Cross here for, as an example. What kinds of things are around us that you can see have been perhaps thought about to model people moving through? Because just below us here, there are just at least hundreds of people passing every minute and there's no congestion, it's all very free-flowing. It's a fascinating thing to watch, actually, especially if you watch it speed it up. But, of course, where the columns are to support their, even the roof are a really important part of what's going on. And in particular, where are they positioned in, in relation to exits and entrances? But it's also, it's got very high ceilings and it's very light in here and generally quite a pleasant environment. Is this quite important for crowds? Of course, it's aesthetically pleasing, but it also makes people feel a bit happier if they can see light and have space above them as well as around them. So they've learned quite a lot of lessons. Don't forget there was a fire not 100 yards from here on King's Cross Underground Fire that was a major disaster in 1987. So we have learned something from that. Yes, because so that touched on the fact that there have been various failures in the past where large crowds have been involved. So what really needs to be known then about what happens, say, in the case of an emergency where large numbers of people are involved? So when we look at past failures, we often find there are many contributing factors. It's not just a single entity. So firstly, when large groups of people get together, there's often stop-go in their flow so that, that when they stop, they begin to panic and worry about what's going on. Then if you get inflows and outflows coming together or cross-flows, that becomes really problematic. More importantly, in new buildings where you don't know where you are, you're not sure where the exits are. So this is a really critical factor, of getting people to know really the, the alternative ways out. And that's where training of new staff comes in helpful. So is that the kind of thing that's accommodated now, that extra level of information for people to know where to go? Information and monitoring. So firstly, King's Cross here is monitored probably more than any station in the world. But secondly, inf information can be given back to the people via announcements that we can hear almost uh, every few minutes. So information to be gained and information given out is really critical in the time of stress. Does this tap in on human psychology and kind of human behaviour and the fact that people like to know what's going on? 
It does, absolutely. And that's where mathematicians like myself would have to work with psychologists. Everybody is different, so um, it's quite important to understand how people behave. You know, we can learn a lot from studying other animals too, but people have this particular thing that they have a real choice. You can make decisions much, much quicker. And so we really need to understand those to get the right result. What about the actual design of the structure? What else can you see here that perhaps would have been thought about to keep crowds moving? I mean, for example, there is a a one-way system in place here. Does that make quite a big difference? That's a huge difference here. The the arrivals and departures being separated makes a lot of difference, particularly for the arrivals. You have lots of people waiting to meet other people, so these are very stationary objects, and this can create problems. And how do you account for the different types of disaster, I guess, that could happen? Because there could be a fire or there could be a bomb scare, say, in a station like this. I mean, do these all need to be thought about differently? Yes, those and more, actually. I mean, even somebody uh, fainting or a a fight occurring by an exit. So really, people have to sit down and think out of the box what what could possibly go wrong, and then we try and then prevent that failure. So once we know what they possibly are, we can design against it. And what about, I guess, the context of the actual building and its purpose? So this is a large station with people moving through it each day, but something like for the Olympics, a stadium is very much people that are stationary and only moving at very specific times. Yeah, it's quite a critical in a stadium because although people may arrive slightly staggered, they all pretty much leave at the same time. The important thing to remember there is if everybody's leaving all at once at the final whistle or the exits needs to be large enough to count for that. And you also have to have signage and make sure that people don't stop immediately outside the door is another critical thing. We often see that in uh, fire evacuations. People stand immediately outside the door and just block the exit for everybody else. So it's keeping people moving again. It's always the case. If people are moving, they're generally happy. When they're stationary, they tend to get a bit edgy. So in summary, really, what position would you say we're in today, using these models and designing buildings for large numbers of people? We're certainly in a much better position, Mira, because we have the experience of what's gone before and the technology to actually predict what might happen in certain scenario events. So we have understanding of people's behaviour together with information technology, as well as bright, airy designs. On top of that, we can add scenario setting from mathematical modelling to actually help us really understand the whole picture, so understanding how it all comes together. And that was Stephen Bishop from University College London talking to Mira Senthalingham on how modelling the movement of people can help keep crowds moving at the Olympic Games this summer. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Louise Anthony. We're talking about keeping the Olympics safe this evening. And our guests are Dr Chris Williams, who's a consultant in communicable disease control, and also Dr Clifford Stott, who is an expert on how crowds behave. Got a whole raft of questions coming in. I like this one, though. Clifford, RF Axel in Second Life says, uh, does anyone study virtual crowds in virtual environments, things like Second Life? Because we've got lots of people in Second Life who like listening to this programme. Well, certainly we've heard from Stephen Bishop there about the mathematical modelling of crowd behaviour. So uh, that's a big industry, if you like, in the study of crowds, looking at crowd flows and so on. But I think that there is a need to start thinking in a more sophisticated way about the way in which we can mimic crowd environments. And there certainly are some people doing work like that. John Drury, for example, has done some very good work looking at creating simulation exercises or experiments of underground stations with crowds and put people into what we might call a a virtual environment. Steve Reicher as well at St Andrews University has got what we call an immersion lab where there are screens on each side and you put an individual in there to replicate the environment of a crowd. But the extent to which we've got computers that can model crowd behaviour and and mimic crowds and what they're going to do is very, very limited. And part of the reason for that is because the mathematical models that are used to underpin these formula haven't really taken into account properly this collective psychology that we've been developing over the the last few decades. Chris is waving his hands. Uh, World of Warcraft, you're saying, Chris? Of course, this has nothing to do with the Health Protection Agency's response to the Olympics, but uh, for my time in Germany, a uh, good colleague, Florian Burkhardt, who's still there, pointed out that in, in the World of Warcraft, they introduced an infection into it in, in one small part of the this large online world. That really is a computer virus, isn't it? It is, yes. And the idea was it was only supposed to stay in this one particular um, part but because people could teleport from one bit to the other. It soon spread to the rest of the world and my understanding is, I could be wrong, but I think they had to reset the whole of the, the game because it, it spread so widely. But more, more practically, certainly the, the HPA has done, done lots of um, modelling in terms of large groups of people and, and infectious diseases and a lot of that informs the debate about what you do in terms of influenza pandemic. Is it worth closing schools and is it worth closing airports? 
sports, that kind of thing. And Chris, we've got a question here from CB Axel on Second Life who asks, the horses are quarantined, why don't we quarantine people? That's an interesting question, yes. Um, we should explain the difference between quarantine, um, which is rarely done now with humans, and, and, and isolation. Occasionally, if someone's got something quite serious that needs to not to be transmitted to other people, sometimes some of the viral hemorrhagic fevers, we put them in isolation and make sure that nobody can catch what they've got through measures, hand washing and barrier nursing, etc. Quarantine is a more broader thing that you're waiting for some to see if someone is actually going to develop an illness so if you say 10 people exposed to someone with measles you could quarantine all of those people by keeping them although they're well away from everybody else but as you can imagine that that can multiply quite quickly and you would have to quarantine an awfully large number of people and in general we found that travel restrictions aren't really very helpful in in controlling communicable disease horses are a different matter and, and i wouldn't comment on a veterinary thing and they're certainly more expensive than the uh, a lot of things. So. But not than in person, though. But the person. origin of um, quarantine is interesting, isn't it? Wasn't it the Venetians who came up with this? And originally they used 20 days, and then they, they went to 40 days, hence the name quarantine, which was the time they stopped people getting off ships coming in. And they reasoned that people, if they were going to get something, would get it within that 20 days, or then subsequently 40 days. And, and that would cover, with, as you know, with the incubation periods of most common illnesses, that would cover most, uh, most of the infections that you would, you would be concerned about. And now we've got Hannah Critchlow keeping her cool with our Question of the Week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. In the run-up to the Olympics, we find out if applying ice to injury is a good thing, and if so, why? My name is Colin McKenzie. I'm a retired family physician living in Santa Cruz, California. The use of ice and ice packs is increasingly popular in the treatment of all manner of soft tissue injuries and post-surgical events. Is there any evidence, other than anecdotal, of the benefit of such treatment? We turn to Jonathan Leader, physiologist at the English Institute of Sport. Acute soft tissue injuries, such as contusions, strains and sprains, are frequent in multiple human endeavours and ice is commonly applied as part of the PRICE principle, which stands for Protection, Rest, Ice, Compression and Elevation. Ice is generally applied immediately post-injury to reduce tissue metabolism, thereby limiting secondary hypoxic damage and reduce the degree of edema and muscle damage. Although this holds credited scientific rationale, there is very little empirical evidence to support the use of ice at this stage. So ice cools injured tissue down, lowers its metabolism, and it's thought that this decreases the chance that the swollen tissue becomes starved of oxygen and further damaged. Anything else? The second common use of ice is in the rehabilitation stage, primarily due to the analgesic properties of ice application. The efficacy of ice application for analgesia, largely due to reductions in nerve conduction velocity, is well documented and supported by a reasonable evidence base. Although ice may be capable of reducing the painful symptoms associated with soft tissue injury, there is limited evidence to suggest that the application of ice enhances the recovery rate of injury rehabilitation. It may just alleviate soreness during the recovery process. Conversely, there is a body of growing evidence that suggests it may actually be detrimental to attempt to reduce the inflammatory response through ice application because inflammation is a critical part of the repair process. In summary, due to the proven analgesic properties of ice application, it does have a place in acute soft tissue management, but due to a lack of evidence in high quality research, optimal protocols are not known. So, ice is known to be useful at stopping pain, and it does this by lowering the speed that nerve cells send their electrical signal. Decreasing tissue temperature with the ice may also slow down the rate of production of inflammatory factors, and this will include some noxious pro-inflammatory metabolites that will sensitise nerve endings to pain. So cutting down the inflammation will cut down pain this way too. But... The downside of this is that ice may also be slowing down your body's immune system and therefore preventing your body from repairing itself. Now, let's move from pain to pleasure with a question from Armin Weller from Dubai. Does metallic cutlery really affect perception of food taste? Common wisdom tells that caviar should not be eaten from steel spoons and for gourmet occasions, often porcelain or bone spoons are used. Some people do state that raw fruit tastes differently when cut with ceramic knives than when cut with common stainless steel knives. How much of this is a myth? Thank you. Send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientist.com slash forum. 
Hannah Critchlow. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us and thank you to our guests, Chris Williams, Clifford Stott and Steve Bishop and also to our production team who include this week Tom Simpkins and Ben Vowsler. Next week we're discovering a super strong kind of steel called Super Bayonite. We'll find out how it was developed and why really strong steels are great for making wind turbines and even new types of armour. Send your questions in to chris at thenakedscientist.com, follow us on Twitter at Naked Scientist, or drop us a line on our Facebook page, nakedscientist.com slash Facebook. We'll get you there. In the meantime, have a great week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.